0: Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look at how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, we're going to be hearing from a fund manager who places a lot of emphasis on how to successfully overcome behavioral finance biases as part of how he runs money. Mick Dillon manages the Brown Advisory Global Leaders Fund, and I'll be asking him about two of the biggest biases that cause investors to make irrational investment decisions based on emotion, which are inertia and loss aversion. Before we get to that interview, I just wanted to quickly run through how I think both of these biases specifically apply to the fund management industry. So in my view, inertia is the reason why there's so many funds, there's thousands of them. As we all know, many of these funds, they are substandard, but they continue to exist because they continue to have enough money in the funds. And this, in my view, is because there's a tendency by less engaged investors to buy a fund and not make changes due to inertia. And very briefly, in the case of the other bias, loss aversion, so this causes investors to be too cautious. I believe this bias is prevalent in pensions for those that are at the start of their pension-saving journeys, those in their 20s or 30s, So if you don't engage with where your pension is invested, the chances are you'll be put in a default pension fund and that fund will be chosen for you will be some sort of balanced multi-asset fund. This will have automatically been selected by a pension firm as being the safe choice. The irony though, is that while such a fund is unlikely to fall like a stone over a short time period, over the long term, it's potentially a missed opportunity. A balanced fund, it'll typically have 40 to 60% in global shares, but those with a 30 to 40 year time horizon, they can afford to be more adventurous than that. So let's start off with inertia. So that leads to inaction. So why is it, do you think, Mick, that there is a tendency to buy a share and then fail to react to events such as a share price, you know, if the share price falls for a specific reason? It's such an interesting question. It's it's
1: actually part of Endowment effect. They're actually tied together. And it's also opportunity cost that that comes into this as well. It was first described, um, this is a long time back, it was a Nobel Prize winning um, uh, economist called Richard Thaler when he was at Chicago. Um, And he wrote a book called Nudge, which describes, goes into a lot of depth on this. Um, and actually, it was done in collaboration with another Nobel laureate, Danny Kahneman, who I'm sure we'll get onto in a second. But really, it comes down to hoarding. And, and this is one of our key survival strategies, um, which is when we, when, when we literally had nothing and we living in caves, you needed tools. And so the more tools you had, the more likely you were to survive. And so we still use that same behavioural instinct, but in a very misappropriated way here which is we like to hoard things and we get our collection together and we don't ever sit back and sit there and say, but do I still need this tool? Is it still relevant today? And it even goes into some of the ways that we think. So a lot of those survival instincts, the fight or flight nature, uh, system one versus system two in psychology, they talk about it. Um, They're not actually appropriate to investing because actually at the point of biggest fear is actually your biggest opportunity. Whereas in fact, we get we in fact inertia is almost reversing this, saying, "Well, I've got all these things, so I don't I don't want to react." Um, there's another really interesting part to it, or, or adjacency, which is it's about commitment, and this commitment um, is from a, another uh, very famous psychologist, um, Robert Cialdini. Um and w- he we like to see consistency in people. And we like we don't like people to chop and change their actions. And this always reminds me of, of the great Keynes quote, which is, um, when the facts change, sir, I, I change my mind. What do you do? The problem with that is, though, that it can look like we are literally changing our stripes as, as, as we go along. Um, and that's not good. People value consistency significantly higher than they do people's willingness and ability to update and, and bring our views into line. But I want to just come back to Thaler, because he did this remarkable experiment. It was really funny. So I said he was at Chicago. So The Chicago School of Economics at the time was the center for the efficient market hypothesis. And so he's this behavioral economist. He's like a duck out of water. There's a behavioral economist mixed in with all of these efficient market hypothesis guys. Uh, And he observes one of the proponents of this theory, who had bought some wine. He'd paid about $5 a bottle. This is back in the 50s or 60s for a case of wine, which at that point would have been a lot of money. The wine merchant came back to him quite a few years later and said, I'll, I'll buy it off you for hundred dollars a bottle. Um, and he wouldn't sell. And the, the interesting thing is he'd never paid more than $35 for a bottle of wine in his life. So in other words, he, the mismatch between what he would ever pay for a wine and what he would sell for the wine was enormous. There's this massive gulf. And this is where some of the inertia creeps in because what happens is because we own something, we think it's more valuable than than necessarily or objectively it really is. And again, this is getting back to the, the hoarding as well. And this is where it leads to inaction. And so on the I, I guess on the downside, to come back to your question a little bit, of not reacting to the negative news, this is important because you don't have to... Um, underperformed to be existing to, to be exhibiting these traits you, you, you go through the portfolio and you look and you can see this um, and to your point often we fall in love with our investments there've been terrific investments for the last five years but now there's some negative news and potentially things have changed but it's always served me well in the portfolio so so I want to keep it actually that's wrong you've got a dead weight in the portfolio and now now there's um, you're missing out on what's known as opportunity cost to be able to reallocate that capital to a more highly profitable venture. The last thing, just to come back again to Cialdini and commitment, we are very quickly, as humans, we very quickly update information and adapt to changes in the narrative as, as, as new things come along. But ultimately as a portfolio manager, what matters is what's the potential return on this investment? and and has that changed and is there a better idea and that means you've got a journal and go back and check your original narrative because we've updated the story in our mind but we haven't gone and checked why we invested in the first case and so you you have to say yep my base case was xyz it it might have changed but what we don't want to do is appear inconsistent and the answer is as fund managers we make mistakes all the time. The statistics are very clear. Nobody, nobody ever runs at 100%. And so you've got to have rules and process to deal with these um, these losers. And uh, just that consistency in Chiordini. So Chiordini wrote two really good books. One was called um, Influence, and another one was called Persuasion. And into those, he goes into uh, what they call the hobgoblins of the little mind, which is that we want to exhibit consistency because as humans, we value that trait amongst other humans very highly. Why? Because we can trust them, right? But actually in investing, you've got to update your views and to your point, change your mind and don't get stuck in the inertia.
0: So the behavioural flaw of investors placing a higher value on something they own, so that, that can occur when a share price has fallen, you know, 20, 25%, as well as, you know, you've owned a company that's done very well over a particular point in time.
1: Yeah, this
0: was this was
1: uh, exactly why when answering the question before, I went to the positive side and then I went to the negative side on it. And you're exactly correct. It works both ways, and it's it's not even um, it's not systematic in terms of it's not like there's an even bias both ways. In fact, the biases uh,
0: have differential split, particularly on the negative side. And loss aversion. That's another key behavioral bias. So this you know, also leads investors to hold onto an investment that's declined in value. And under loss aversion, the pain of loss is greater than the equivalent pleasure of gain. And loss aversion, it can also cause investors to be too cautious in the way that they invest. So Mick, could you explain more about why that's the case?
1: This, so, so this is, from my observations, probably the biggest destroyer of values in portfolios is, is loss aversion and holding on to losers too long. Um, in part tied to that inertia, but but they're actually technically in psychology, they're separate effects. Um, And why is that? Well, because you hope it's going to rebound. And as any investor knows, that's not a great investment strategy. Um, And and then what's worse, you probably capitulate at the worst price when you should have sold it three months ago or six months ago or whatever it was. Um, And to to get to the second part of your question, there is another side of that as well, which is um, being too cautious. And one manifestation of that is, um, not building out new positions quickly enough because you're too, you're too cautious and you don't want to have a big position and then see it exhibit some loss. So you're scared of loss aversion hitting you very quickly on the way in. But, but let's start with the losers. Look, let's be honest, dealing with losers is hard. Um, n- nobody feels great about it. Um, statistically, as I said, it's part of the job. And, and I think about this, um, not just because I'm Australian, uh, and look at sport. But, but there's so many corollaries between professional sport and professional investing. Um, and think about in football or in rugby, Man City don't win every match. And thank goodness, neither do the mighty All Blacks. But if you've, you've got to have a game plan, they always have game plans and their game plans change ever at the margin. The game plans change over time, depending on what the opposition is or, or what's out there in the field. And so the real issue here is how we think and process information during times of stress and all of these behavioral analytical techniques. This is to me, this is the most important development in investing in the last 20, 20 years. And I, I touched on the evolutionary history before, but those fight or flight responses, they're all short term. Um, and and it, they're even worse than that because the interfere with the way that we think in the long-term. So for long-term thinking and planning, people who study the brain will tell you you need to go to the neocortex, which is the gray matter at the front of the brain. When the limbic, when the survival system kicks in, you're not thinking long-term gray matter. You're thinking what's known as the basal part of the brain or the limbic system. That's a really old part of the brain. It's at the base of the brain and it just happens. You don't even know it. I don't know if you've done this recently. I actually did it very recently. I've cut my finger and I didn't know I'd cut it till I saw it. Boy, I heard, I felt it then, but, but I'd already moved the finger away. And so that, that immediate reaction is something that we can't control and we can't overcome because it's innate. And so therefore, we have to have rules and process and structure to, do, to deal with these things. And back to the loss aversion, this is the original uh, um, behavioural economics paper from Danny Kahneman and Tversky. And they show, to your point, we feel pain twice as much as we feel pleasure. That's it. It's literally a two-to-one downside distribution here. Um, and, and it is, as I said, it's physical. It's not just emotional, it's physical. We literally can't think in the, old, in the new part of our brain. We use the old part of our brain. And that's great when you're in the jungle and a twig snaps and you think it might be a lion. Don't sit around to find out, run like billy and And it turns out there wasn't one. Well, there's not a lot of downside there. You're out of breath, so what? But but the, the other downside crystal clear. That's why it's all linked to survival um, and all of these things. And these are terrible traits for long-term investing. Coming back to something I said before is, it's at the moments of crisis that you get the biggest opportunities. March 2020, April 2020. That's when you saw really interesting, it, within that week, you saw some amazing bargains in the moment at that time. I'm not saying it felt good to go and buy things then. <laughs> we did not know how COVID was going to play out, but that's what you've got to do. And, and some of the best decisions you make are some of the most uncomfortable, always. But one thing, just to just to come back to the this, this psychology, is you hope that it will require recover and you don't have to fess up and admit that you've made a mistake. And, and I said before, hope's not an investment strategy. It's even worse than that because now you've got loss aversion, endowment effect, consistency and commitment. You've got all these minefield of behavioural traps that, that can either lead to inertia or lead to inaction or, or doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And so what you don't want is these. what was a small loser becoming a gaping hole in the portfolio because you didn't react back when you should have. And you've got to have a game plan. But but the other thing I guess about that is, don't just have a game plan. Back to the All Blacks and Man City, have a plan. You need different plans at different times. If you're up two 0 at half time, that's a different game plan to being going in two 0 down at half time. And and so you need to think about different plans for different times.
0: So let's move on to the different plans that um, investors can have. The sort of you know how investors can practically overcome those two big behavioural biases. So Mick, I know as part of your investment process, you carry out a drawdown review on companies when the share price has fallen 20% or more since you bought it, or if it's underperformed the fund's benchmark by 20% uh, over a 12-month period, and you then make a decision either way to either buy more or to cut your losses. And by making the decision either way, this is helping you overcome both inertia and loss aversion. So could you talk us through that process?
1: Yeah. Uh, this is the bit about having rules um, is knowing the biases isn't enough. And, and on a personal level, I always think about it um, from the classic gym membership example, uh, which I'm guilty of as well, of paying my monthly fee for the gym membership but, and then not going and sitting there going, well, at least I've got my gym membership. But, but unless you've got a rule of I'm going to go every Tuesday lunchtime then and it's in your timetable and it's part of your daily process and routine then you may or may not go and and that's the same for diet and exercise and sleep and all these things right so the way we do it is we actually run two parts two parts to our process one is about finding these great companies we invest in and, and that's a lot of fun but the other bit to get to your point is all about capital allocation and having a specific plan back to the two up at halftime or or down and You've, not only do you have to have a plan, I, I think you need a coach too. All, all, if you think about it, all professional sports teams have coaches. By the way, I don't know if you know this, um, all surgeons, top flight surgeons, all have coaches. Pilots have coaches, BA pilots who, as an example, fly 777s. It's a 15-year-old aircraft. They still have, they still have coaches out there, um, opera singers. All, a lot of people at the top of their fields have coaches. And, and the question then becomes, well, well, Why? And the classic example is Roger Federer, and the answer is that you can always get better. Um, And and so we, we use our coach to help us think about separating between what a portfolio manager job is, which is buying, selling, sizing, to get into these questions around capital allocation versus Um, Just finding these great companies, a collection of great companies. And back to the the process, this is one of the two things we can control. We can control the inputs and we can control the process. We don't control the outcome. The outcome is going to be what it is. These two things that we can control is why you've got to have the game plan. I think the best athletes we ever see, they always have this culture, this learning culture, open mindset of of self-improvement. And I want to I get to your the real nub of your question, which is think think about this situation. So you've just invested in some company. It's fallen 20%. We've got, you know, we, we manage money for kindergarten teachers. So we've just lost 20% of part of the retirement fund for our kindergarten teachers' future, right? That's a pretty stressful situation. And the answer is don't get stuck in the moment. Think about how you're going to deal with that. And you described our rule exactly is... If it's down 20%, we have to buy more or get out. And I should probably frame that just a little bit. Our average holding period is about eight years. Um, half our portfolio has been there since day one eight years ago. So this is we're not a high turnover portfolio by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and, and in fact, uh, we've run this process now and 14 times in the last seven years have we actually decided to exit. So about twice a year, we have this man overboard moment and, and we have to deal with the losers. Um, but there's a couple of great questions you can ask. The first one is, do I care about this issue in five years time? And you'd be stunned how many issues you don't. So that, do I care about this issue in five years time, is a really great tool for, for thinking about this. The other one is, is it a temporary or is it a permanent change? If it's temporary and it's gonna pass, don't worry about it, this is your opportunity, buy more. If it's permanent and something's really structurally changed, be really careful <laughs> because now you get, you. Got this updating narrative and you're slipping into the, the situation where you say oh yeah it's fallen 10 percent and my base case has come down a bit but it could still be a good investment and the answer is yeah but your base case is wrong and you need to think about why you're not getting out and this is where the rules help you because it actually changes all the psychology in the room if you've got loss aversion and you're down 20 percent, the natural instinct is to either run away from the pain okay so let's just pretend it's not happening or to crush the source of pain. That's it. this is how we act, that's fight or flight. Uh, and so as an investor, the way that manifests is everybody typically has these, You know, they have a review, we've got to lose a review, whatever it is. Um, and there's some poor analyst in the room who's recommended this investment and everybody just beats up on them. Well, here's how you change the psychology. You sit there and you say, "Right, well, I don't care how we got here, just help me make a good decision today. And by the way, there's no shame in being wrong. Nobody runs at 100% hit rate. Man City doesn't win every match. Thank God the All Blacks don't win every match. Um, and, and so you you don't you need to accept that this is statistically part of what's going to happen. But once you do that, once you've got the rules in there, then you can short circuit the psychology. Then you can change this from, this is not a moment of crisis, classic Chinese uh, culture. Think about the symbols in, in Mandarin. Crisis and opportunity, the, the first two characters are the same characters in those two words in, in Mandarin. And there's a reason for that because it is risk, but
0: it is opportunity. And so for us, you've got to change the mindset in the room. And Do you have a process in place for shares that perform well, particularly if they perform well over a short time period? Because obviously there's, a, there's always the danger of falling in love with a stock. Yeah,
1: sorry, I should have come back to that. That was also implicit in your question, wasn't it? Yes, it works. Again, it works both ways. Um, and it's really hard to not do that because we, we make a misattribution in our heads. And again, back to, back to sport, um, there's a lot of um, both skill and luck. And one thing that we, that we do is when it works, we attribute it to skill. And when it doesn't work, we attribute it to bad luck. And the truth is, that's not right. <laughs> and so you've got to disaggregate that. And one of the ways for dealing with winners is actually really aligned with the same or, or the contra for dealing with, with losers, which is if, if you uh, have a rigorous process, and for us that means every week we sit down and we have a meeting and we literally look at What is our expected return for each investment in the portfolio? And to your point, if something's gone up a lot and your fundamental business case hasn't changed, well, your future return has gone down. You've collected the return today, but your future return must have gone down. So you should, all else equal, be taking away from that investment and allocating to something with a higher potential future IRR. And back to your point, that requires process. That requires, back to the PM skills, it's buying, selling and sizing. And sizing is the one where every week you can sit down and look at your portfolio and say, "Why do I have X percent in this company? Y percent in that company? What do I think this looks like in five years' time?" And so, yeah, you're right. You you need to do
0: it both ways. Sorry, I, I only I went straight to the negative part of the prior question. And size and shares appropriately. That's part of you know the rebalancing process, which investors can practically um, you know do that themselves. Um, so, what's your general thoughts on rebalancing? Do you think it's a force for good? Oh yeah. We, we, so we literally sit down every week
1: and have an entire separate discussion on not are these the right companies to own, we're already invested, they better be, right? It's how much money should we have in each of these these companies. Now now we don't do it formulaically, we don't sit there and have some maths formula there because um, you need to be careful, back to the inputs, you need to be careful with the inputs. They're, they're not as finely calibrated to allow that mathematical output, meaning that they're, they're our best current estimate of future Returns with a future probability, and so therefore we, we look at the probabilities, we look at the potential returns. Um, but but what we do do is we force rank, and then we sit there and say, right, let's get them in order, and now let's look. And about we we don't trade very often. We probably trade once every three weeks. But we'll sit there. Eventually, something gets to the point where we go, something's gone up so much, right? We need to take some capital away. Something's underperforming. Is everything else still intact, right? Let's let's move some capital to the under performing position and that that weekly ranking for us is a really good discipline of just sitting down with the cold hard numbers because the numbers don't change, right? The numbers, you've got your range on roughly where you think that base case is gonna be and so long as it's in the range, then, then you buy more. One other way that we come up with a rebalancing is every quarter we do um, what we call a blank sheet of paper review. And that is where we literally start again we normally do it over a weekend and we go away and we start again and say right if i could just start again what would what would the portfolio look like today and then the obvious question on the monday is why doesn't it look like that but of course the second that you start comparing it with within the team or with your co fund manager etc then more interesting come questions come up of hey eight out of our top 10 positions were the same but you've got two different to me why is that like what, what is it that you're seeing or thinking that I'm not seeing or thinking? Or how have you calibrated this differently to me? And then you start uncovering, uncovering some really interesting questions. The obvious ones are you get down to the bottom ones and you find, in you know, we've got 30 to 40 investments. You find that you've both got the, the bottom three investments are the same. So like, well, what are we even doing here? Like, is our 33rd best idea that we both think is our worst idea? Really, should that even be in the strategy? And, and so, it's a ways of rebalancing, like as part of your process, so you do it every every quarter or structurally as you go along, um, but it's not, um, we don't sit there and sit, think, oh, uh, we're going to run some mathematical formula on this, but I think you need to think about the rebalancing to your point, both from the positive and the negative, which is, just because something's gone up and it feels good, that doesn't mean it's going to be a good investment for the next five years.
0: I've written a lot about rebalancing over the years, and I think it is a, you know, it's a golden rule that um, investors should be using. You know, reviewing their portfolio a couple of times a year it helps maintain an appropriate level of risk. But one thing I've been challenged on a couple of times is the, the risk of selling a star performer too soon.
1: Yes, yeah, so this is almost the opposite of the classic, they call it um, trimming the flowers and watering the weeds. Yes, and, and again, this does happen. So one of our best investments, uh, without going into it, is a company that for the first five years of our investment, uh, we had to keep moving our base case up to our bull case. In other words, we were significantly underestimating what they could achieve. And, and you'd think by year five, we would have gone, <laughs> we, we would have been, no, we had to do it again. Um, and so you've got to, check that the fundamentals are supporting the story. This is back to the journal that I said before. Going back to your journal and looking at what was your original base case and what was your bull case and what was your bear case? But what was it? Are you still on range or are having are you having to change? And by the way, if the fundamentals have improved and and you've still got the double digit IRR, what you may what actually has happened is you should have had a bigger position earlier, right? But you didn't know that because you didn't have the estimates in the right place. So you've always got to recalibrate, meaning checking that the potential future returns are there. And there there is a risk. Running the winners is a great strategy for long-term investors.
0: Absolutely. But back to your point, that doesn't mean run it at any price. Thank you to Mick for his insights and practical pointers on how to overcome those behavioral finance biases. And thank you for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please follow the show in your podcast app and tell a friend about it. And if you get a chance, leave us a review or a rating in your podcast app too. You can join the conversation, ask questions and tell us what you would like us to talk about via email, which is otm at ii.co.uk. And in the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website, which is ii.co.uk. See you next week.